Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 is where we left off last week in our journey through this beautiful New Testament letter. As you're finding Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to read verses 15 through 26. That's our sermon text this morning. We're not going to quite finish chapter 9. We're going to leave verses 27 and 28. Not for the next two Sundays, because I'm going to be out of town. Next Sunday, I'm going to preach at Cleveland Road Baptist Church in some obscure town in northeast Georgia called Athens. And then after that, I'm going to be in India, where I will be ministering to the group of churches that we have a long connection with, and be preaching there at their family camp. And then the Sunday after Thanksgiving, I'll come back and we'll handle verses 27 and 28. But for now, our text is verse 15 through 26. I'm going to read the text. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, we're in the middle of a deep, deep place in the Bible, maybe the deepest waters in all of the New Testament. But I I pray and I think that you can understand, you'll catch up to the context and I'll do my best to explain it to you. But for now, let me read God's word and do your best because we live in a distracted world and we're anxious people and our attention spans in this age are not what it used to be. Do your best, please, to give attention to the reading of God's word. This is the best part of the sermon here in the next few minutes. So please listen as I read God's word. Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 26. This is the author of Hebrews speaking of Jesus. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, 
but into heaven itself. Now... repeatedly since the foundation of the world but as it is he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself this is God's holy word let me pray pray with me that God would help us Lord these are glorious truths that the writer of Hebrews is taking us into Do your work. I pray that your word would not return void as you've promised it to do so. And help me. Help these people I love. In Jesus' name, amen. A summary of the argument this far, thus far of Hebrews is that I think you could sum, sum up the message of Hebrews by just saying that Jesus is better than anything that came before him. The writer is a New Testament a new covenant, a first century Jew who's writing to first century Jews, ethnic Jews, who were likely living in Rome, who were undergoing persecution, mostly social persecution at this time for their faith in Christ. And there was pressure on them, as we've said week after week, to revert back to the old covenant, to revert back to Judaism, which was accepted in the Roman Empire. And so the sustained argument of Hebrews is don't go back, hold on to Jesus. Everything that you're tempted to go back to was merely a shadow that's meant to point to the reality that is Christ. So he starts off by saying that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the physical promised land that God promised Abraham. In fact, that promised land was just an earthly temporary shadow to point to the reality of the new Canaan, the new heavens, the new earth, the promised land, which is Christ. He's better, so stay with Jesus. Not only that, Jesus is a better priest than any earthly priest that has come before him. Not only is he a better priest, but he's a better sacrifice. And what he has done once and for all is better than anything that the law commanded in a temporary shadow-like sense. And, and, and this is where we are in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. He has inaugurated, he's established, he's brought forth a new covenant that is better than the old it's related to the old. The old had its purposes, but it was meant to point towards the new, and Jesus is that new covenant. And so here in chapters 9 and 10, he, he lingers. We are in, he's taking us back into the old covenant. He's taking us back into the wanderings of God's people in the desert, into the tabernacle set up in the desert. And he's taking us back, as it were, and he's giving us a kind of tour of the Holy of Holies, the tent that was set up and as Israel would wander in the desert where the priests, and then on one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, written up in Leviticus chapter 16, that the priests would enter into on the Day of Atonement, which is what the Jews call today Yom Kippur. And he's taking us in that, and last week he showed us the 
furniture and all that that symbolized. And here he's zeroing in in chapters 9 and 10 on the sacrifice of Christ and what it has done. And it's as if the author of Hebrews is standing here in the Holy of Holies, hammering home the most important of all theological truths. And that truth is the propitiating work of Jesus, God himself in the flesh. So I want us to linger here and look at these verses a little bit at a time and then conclude, if we have time, with two truths and then receive the Lord's table today, which will be such an appropriate time as we look at what Jesus has done for us. So look at verse 15 again. It says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He's ushering in a new covenant, a new way that God will deal with his people. And he says that this is, this is so that they may receive something, the promised eternal inheritance. And in a sense, verse 15 is kind of a summary of everything that follows behind it. And he's saying that a death has occurred that activates, if you will, in a sense, that inheritance. And so the earthly inheritance that was promised to God's people in the Old Testament was just an earthly temporary picture that's meant to picture a heavenly eternal reality which is all that is ours in Christ. And what he's saying is is that Jesus' death has, has brought into force that covenant. And to do that, to give us a picture of that in verses 16 and 17, he, he brings up this idea of a covenant being like a will. Now what's interesting here is in verses 16 and 17 that we'll look at in just a second, We see in our English Bibles the word will, but actually in the original language Greek that the writer of Hebrews is writing in, that word that's translated English as will is the same word for covenant that we see in verse 15 and that he's used in chapters 8, 9, and 10. It's the same word. But I think our English translators have served us well here because the sense in Greek, the word for covenant or will or testament is the same word, just depending on the context of how you would use that word, is whether or not what it meant, a covenant or a will or a testament, which all are related ideas. And so here in verse 16 and 17, the author is wanting to draw out a a specific aspect of the covenant. And, and, And the English translators use the word will to draw out the aspect that the author is wanting to bring about. And he's saying that if there is a will involved, The death of the one who's made it must be established, for it takes effect only at death. So we all know this. We're all all acquainted with this. When you have a last will and testament, and and, and grandfather or the patriarch dies, or whoever, the the parent dies, the, the son, the children, the daughters do not get the inheritance until the death. It would be like, you know like vultures hanging around grandpa before he's died. You know, well, grandpa has to die before we get the inheritance. We all understand that's what a will is. And that's the analogy that he's using here. Death is necessary, and when that death happens, that death triggers the release of the promises of the will, which is the inheritance. That's what he's making, the point he's making in verses 16 and 17. He's making the point that death is necessary for all the promises of God to come to his people. And if there is death, now he's going to zero in on what that death looks like and When death is necessary, blood is necessary. And so now he takes us, he gives us a closer look at what the old covenant required in its, in a sense, will or testament. Verse 18, he says, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. In other words, the the blessings of God could not come apart from death or, or blood here. Couldn't be brought into effect. For every commandment of the law was declared by Moses, verse 19, 
To all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. In verse 20, this is quoting Exodus. He says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In other words, the, the agreement, the covenant, the, 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 the deal that God has struck with his people, it's signed in a temporary sense in the old covenant with the blood of these animals. And, and in the same way, it says, verse 21, and he sprinkled both the tents and all the vessels used in worship. And even the people we read in verse 19, he, he sprinkled everything is signed in a sense. God's deal, God's covenant, God's promise that if you obey my word, you will receive the inheritance. And if you don't obey the word, then you must die. So the old covenant is a sense setting before God's people life and death. And it's, it's this deal, it's this covenant signed with blood. In verse 22, this summary statement, he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So just, just notice here the vividness of this scene. Everything in the old covenant was purified with, with blood. There's no shed blood. There's no forgiveness. On the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, woe to the priest who would, you know, bebop into the Holy of Holies without being covered by blood, without being prepared by blood. He would instantly die. In fact, there's this one instance where these two sons of Aaron actually try and do that. And they, they offer to God strange fire, not according to the, to the laws and sacrifices that God intended, and they drop dead immediately. And so here we have this vivid scene of the holiness of God and this price that is to be paid and the, the signing of this covenant in the blood in a temporary sense of these animals. And you might wonder when you're reading the Old Testament, what's going on? Why would God require the blood of animals? What's this system Friends, this is, God, this is the way God, we all understand this, in a, in a, in a, even on a horizontal sense, that if you, if, you, if you transgress against me, you must make that up. Payment must happen. You must sacrifice something to, 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 to bring reparations for the thing that you've caused. And God has set up his universe in this way. We see it even in the garden. We see blood shed, even in grace, in the first scene, in the first sin in the garden. What is, happens after Adam and Eve sin? God, instead of killing Adam and Eve, which we would have, he would have been just to do, instead he sheds the blood of an animal. When Adam and Eve were trying to cover their sin with fig leaves, God slays an animal, uses their skins to cover their nakedness, even in the garden. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see this principle established that when there is sin, when there's transgression against the holiness of God, blood is required to cover the sin. So sometimes we think of the Old Testament as, being, as God being wrathful and the New Testament as God being gracious. Friends, it's been grace from beginning to end. God has been gracious with his people. And even the whole sacrificial system, which to our modern ears seems strange and antiquated, and why would God go through these steps? It's all a long object lesson to show the mercy and the holiness of God, to set up this principle that God has made and woven into the fabric of his universe, that his holiness is satisfied. When it's transgressed, it can only be satisfied by the shedding of blood. 
And we see this picture now the author's taking us into this Old Testament shadow in the Holy of Holies. And he's saying that everything had to be covered with blood, which was all a shadow pointing to Christ. Which leads us to verse 23. He says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, meaning this this earthly tabernacle and even the earthly temple that came later towards the end of the Old Testament. These were mere copies. They were shadows. They were, in a sense, temporary signs that pointed to the eternal reality of Christ. Even the, it was necessary for the copies of these heavenly things, verse 23, to be purified with these rites. Why? Not as a strange, arbitrary expression of God's judgment of wrath, but to point to the eternal reality of Christ. But the heavenly things themselves implied is is purified with better sacrifices than these, verse 23. How so? He answers, verse 24, for Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, in other words, not into an earthly tabernacle, or not into a tent in the desert or a temple in Jerusalem, which are copies of the true things. But Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, I'm, come on. We, we are in, uh, you guys know I love Romans, but I may have to update. Hebrews, you know I love Romans 8. Um, you know how Luther, at the end of his ministry, wrote, I think he wrote a book called Retractions. Um, one of my retractions may be that Hebrews chapter 9 may, may, may usurp Romans chapter 8 as the, the mountain peak of all of the New Testament. I know, that some, I know that's causing some of you some, some pain and suffering right now. But, but friends, this, this, this in, the end of verse 24 is as glorious as it gets. Think about this. Remember when we talked about covenants a couple weeks ago and how God has made a covenant? We have, in a sense, the broad sense, the old, co- the old covenant and the new covenant. And then within the old covenants, you have these, these several covenants that are like unfolding sub-covenants underneath this whole old covenant, his covenant that he made with Adam and Eve and his covenant that he made with Noah and his covenant that he makes with Abraham and then his covenant that he makes with Moses and then his covenant that he makes with David. And all of these are aspects of the old covenant, which is pointing to the new covenant in Christ. But do you remember, do you remember that the one grand covenant above them all is the covenant of redemption that God, that the triune God has made with himself? Ephesians chapter 1 says that that God in his sovereignty has, has before the foundations of the world has predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. So before there was even a creation that could rebel against God and fall, God planned for the redemption of that creation. He planned for the redemption of a people out of that creation. And it was this covenant, this agreement between the triune God that the Father would plan, that the Son would accomplish, and that the Spirit would enact into the hearts of people. And as we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 9, that the Spirit actually brings Christ here. And now Christ, 
is he is accomplishing the agreement that the Trinity made with itself before the foundations of the world. And Christ, verse 24, is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. And what is Christ in that moment carrying with him? He is carrying with him all of the sins of all of the people who would ever turn and trust in him, past, present, and future. He's carrying it before the Father, and he's carrying with it all of his eternal holiness, and he is saying before the Father, it is satisfied, your holiness is appeased, it's propitiated, it's taken away. Before God, the Son, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And spiritually speaking here in verse 24, the writer is giving us a picture of what is being enacted in heaven on the cross. Jesus is standing before the wrath of God, truly man, truly God, bearing all of your sin, all of mine, there before God, saying my holiness is enough, it's satisfied. And God, God in his holiness is accepting the sacrifice of the Son. And that's why Jesus can say on the cross, it is finished. <laughs> Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. And he, had, he didn't have to do this every Yom Kippur. He doesn't have to do this every Catholic Mass, and that's why our Catholic friends, as much as we may love them, and I, have, I grew up in a place where 95% of my hometown was Catholic, and it breaks my heart to see the Catholic Church in such air to think that they need to reenact, in a sense, the Mass, the crucifixion of Jesus when it's not necessary because it happened once for all. He doesn't need to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year without blood, not his own, for then he would have had to offer had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. No, no, no. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. Once for all at the end of the ages. And what has he done there? To put away sin. Now this is where God gets out of time. And we as end time creatures just have trouble wrapping our minds around it. To put away sin. All your sin, past, present, and future all of it by the sacrifice of himself. It doesn't mean that you don't need to repent in time. It doesn't mean that we don't need to ask for forgiveness afresh. It doesn't mean that we don't need to trust in Christ for our salvation in time. But it means for all those, John 6, that the Father has given to the Son, that the Son brings them all before the Father and all of their sin, past, present, and future. He stands before God and he has, verse 26, put away their sin by the sacrifice of himself. He is more than enough. He has an infinite amount of holiness and he has an infinite amount of human righteousness to satisfy the wrath of God for all the sins of all the people that ever trust in him. So two summary truths to conclude our time before we come to the table. And I, I uh, you know, you read this on, on the flush, you know, you're just kind of blowing through your Bible reading plan, and you get into Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, and it gets a little, gets a little murky, doesn't it? All this blood sacrifice, thinking, what's going on? But I hope that you see that if you read, if you read it slowly enough, and you just think for a minute, what the writer is saying, he's taking you back to this Old Testament shadow, 
And he's saying all of this was just a picture to show you Christ. And now Christ has come and he has done what the shadow could never do. But even the shadow was full of grace. It was just God and his loving patience and his kindness and his endurance bearing with his people to give a a centuries-long picture of his redemption. And now here's Christ. So why Hebrews in the first century? Why Americans in the 21st century? Would you go to anything else? Would you run away from Jesus, hold fast to him, and draw near? And you can see that. And if you see that, you see the depths of all that is in Hebrews chapter 9. So two truths, which I think are very simple consequences of what we just said. One, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's a simple truth, but I think it's as deep as it gets. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I've told you uh, many times that I I came to faith in uh, Pentecostal circles March 16th, 1989, I was a senior in high school in El Centro, California, and my brother and sister-in-law took me to a crusade where I heard the gospel preached, and then I went to an Assembly of God church there, and although I would have some disagreements now theologically with him, I heard the gospel preached, and then I went away to the United States Military Academy and went to an Assembly of God church there right outside the gates of West Point. I might add that Army beat Air Force for the first time in a few years yesterday. Uh, And I want to say that I love, I love, I love my charismatic Pentecostal heritage, even if I don't necessarily agree with all of it now. But one thing that was often said in those circles, every kind of stream of the church has its catchphrases, right? And one of the things that was often said in those circles was, I plead the blood of Jesus. Let's plead the blood of Jesus. Now, uh, there's no phrase or direct admonition in the Bible to plead the blood of Jesus. And I think sometimes, in its worst expression that that can be used as a kind of almost name it and claim it kind of word of faith, sort of false gospel, prosperity gospel sort of phrase to sort of manipulate God. I plead the blood of Jesus over my checkbook or I plead the blood of Jesus over, you know, this, this doctor's diagnosis. And, and, and then that's, in a sense, I think wrongly sort of attributing some sort of special obligation of God to move on your behalf in that moment. I don't think that's the right, I don't think that's a right biblical understanding of that truth at all. But as I've thought about that phrase, I do think in a sense we can redeem that phrase a little bit here. Because I think that's what Hebrews 9 is actually pointing us to do in a sense. It's not saying plead the blood of Jesus in a manipulative sense to get you out of jail free in all of your troubles. But it is saying that, think about this, that your, if I could say it this way, your only plea is the blood of Jesus. As you stand before God, it's not because you grew up in a good church with good theology, or it's not because your mama played the piano, or your daddy was a deacon, or your grandpa was a preacher. It is because the blood of Jesus. And so isn't this good news on both ends of the human spectrum? If if my righteousness doesn't save me, my unrighteousness doesn't put me out of reach. 
That's the good news. Come on, if nobody's saved by their own merit, then nobody can be lost because they're too far gone. And so everybody has the same opportunity for the same plea. I plea, I plea the blood of Jesus. Listen to Psalm 51. We know this psalm. Come on. If you're wrestling with sin and you just keep going back to the dog vomit of your sin, man, make Psalm 51 the anthem of your heart. This is what David says after his horrible sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah. This is what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. How are we cleansed in the new covenant? How are you cleansed in the old covenant? By the blood of the sacrificial animal, which was a shadow to how you're cleansed in the new, by the blood of the perfect Passover lamb, Jesus. Verse 7 of Psalm 51, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide my face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Friends, how does that happen for us as Christians? Not because we've decided to clean ourselves up, but because we, we plead, we plead before God for the blood of Jesus to cover all our sins. This is what it means to be a Christian. We plead. We say our only plea is the blood of Jesus. And it's not only before God. Think about this. Think about this. Getting back to Hebrews chapter 4. This is what the author, he's tying in this encouragement. He says, since we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, don't give up on Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So remember, there's, think about this. Think about verse 24 we just read in Hebrews. is Jesus standing before God. And before God, he's not up there saying, God, look at these, these people that you gave me. I can't, man, I just did what you told me to do, Father. But he's a sympathetic high priest before God. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now what's the confidence? What does this plea produce in us? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So how does this tie into this idea of that the blood of Jesus is our only plea? Friends, we, we find ourselves, even after we've come to faith in Christ, wrestling with sin, and sometimes we shrink away from the only cure. What we should do is we should run boldly into the holy of holies, the throne of grace, the mercy seat that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was picturing. And we stand before him and we say, God, I'm being racked again by sin. I plead for you to remind me of what the blood of Christ has done for me. Give me mercy and help me now in my time of need. And not only do we plead it before God, but we plead it before our enemy, the accuser of the brethren. Remember that verse in Revelation? He wants to come and condemn you. He wants to make you think that you are too far gone. He's called the accuser of the brethren in verse 12, Revelation 12, verse 10. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
And I think verse 10 is not necessarily speaking merely to the end of the ages when Satan is finally and fully defeated, but it also has an already aspect in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He's been thrown down in the victory of Jesus. And what does verse 11 say? And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. And so in a sense, we're not only saying to God himself, the blood of Christ is my plea. We're saying to the voice of condemnation that rears its ugly head in our lives, no, 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 the blood of Christ is my plea. And we say that to the devil, the world, and our own flesh. So the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And secondly, the death of Christ secures our eternal inheritance. I think this is the point of verse 15. If you look back at Hebrews 9, verse 15 again, just think about the logic of the author here. This is, this is why the gospel is such good news. It's not merely a temporary earthly forgiveness of sins. Justification is not the only aspect of the gospel, but it is the promise of the full and final glorification of all of his people. So look at verse 15 of Hebrews 9 again. He says, he's the mediator of this new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So embedded in that obviously is the forgiveness of sins, plea before God that we would be forgiven. But it goes far beyond that. It's that we may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So the death of Christ is the thing. Remember this will analogy in verses 16 and 17, that because Jesus has died, <laughs> think about this. Um, my, parents, um, my parents moved from my little hometown of uh, El Centro, California, um, about an hour and a half inland to San Diego. And I can remember, I feel sort of... Uh, materialistic for sharing this, but you guys will get a kick out of it. Uh, they didn't buy a house in San Diego because it's ridiculously expensive, but they, for the past few years, they've been renting a house in San Diego. Uh, nice little place, love to go there. Uh, the weather in San Diego is absolutely perfect. But you know, this thought occurred in my heart. It's like, oh, mom and dad, like, you know, if you burn all your money in rent, you're not going to have a whole lot left over for me and Todd when, you, when, you know, when the time comes. It, it, just a thought. Just a thought. They weren't amused. And um, they, they haven't since gained any equity by buying a house. I think they're content to just burn through, burn through it. Whatever. Okay, whatever. Guess we've got to make it on our own, honey. But think about this. We all understand the idea of a will. And a major thrust of what's going on in Hebrews chapter 9 is it is saying that because of the death of Jesus, at that death, everything that's his is yours. And he doesn't burn off any of it in rentals. It's all yours if you're in Christ. It's yours. And so in a sense, in a sense, the Christian life 
It's like holding up a copy of the will. This is our sanctification. This is our journey towards our glorification. The will has been ratified. We've stood before the probate judge and he has said, all that's his is now yours because of the death of this one. And so the Christian life is in a sense like holding up a copy of the will, the last will and testament of the creator of the universe, the one who made it all, signed with his blood. And we are saying to the world and to ourselves, this is mine, he is mine, I am his. Think about that. Think about this, just, just holding up this paper here. And, and, and written to the world is, is a reminder, written to the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm his. I'm his. It's, it's been signed in blood. This is the copy of the will of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven. And it's stating that to the world, but it's double-sided. It's stating it. It's pre I'm preaching the gospel to myself. My sins are forever forgiven, and eternity is mine with Jesus. That's what Hebrews 9 is saying to us. To us. And in just a moment, we're going to come around the table and we're going to receive the Lord's Supper. And Tyler is going to lead us through that beautiful passage in, Hebrew, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul gives instruction on how to receive the Lord's Supper. And there's this little line in verse 26 where Paul says that what we do when we come around this table and we take the bread and we take the cup, the blood of the covenant, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So we're, we're, we're and until the full delivery, the full delivery, which is heaven and glorification of all that is ours, we are proclaiming the Lord's death is mine. My sins are forgiven. I come to this table. Everything, everything that I did in rebellion against God, past, present, and future, it's been, it's been taken care of by the blood of Jesus. And everything, not just justification is mine, but glorification, inheritance is mine. The last will and testament of Jesus in his death and resurrection says so. That's who I am. That's what we proclaim when we come to this table. So let's come and feast. Let's feast because of the will, the covenant, the blood of Jesus. If you're a believer, you're welcome to come to this table. You need to be a believer in Jesus. This will does not apply to you unless you're trusting in Jesus. And Paul gives instruction in 1 Corinthians 11. He says that if, you don't, if you're not a believer, if you're not trusting in this, you should not come and take of this meal because to do so would, would be in a sense, even if you don't even consciously realize it would be to, in a sense, it would be to, 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 to mock, to, to sully the, the glory of what this meal is representing. So don't come and receive these elements in just a moment if you're not a believer. But if you are trusting in Jesus, whether you're a member of this church or not, if you believe this gospel that you've heard preached today, come and say with us, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Shout it to the world and shout it to yourself that all of my sin has been forgiven and all that's his is mine. Let me pray. Lord, help us as we come to this meal. Remind us of these things. For the brother or sister wrestling with sin, shrinking back 
from the throne of grace. Their plea is not two or three weeks of relative victory over their sin in their own sanctification. Their plea is the blood of Jesus. So let them run, run to you to find mercy and help in their time of need. And as we proclaim your death until you come, may eternity be so fixed on our eyes that it unclenches our fists from our grip on earthly things that we realize our inheritance is bigger than we can imagine. It's better than we ever dreamed. And so therefore, we are free to give our lives away. Let us see these things as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.